Let's read verses 33 through 46 of Matthew chapter 21. The Lord speaking says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless our time in your word. I pray that it will be fruitful. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to understand not merely the sense of the words, but the spiritual meaning behind what's been written and what it means for us. I pray that you'd help us to engage in the work of personal hermeneutics, applying these things and their meaning to ourselves, that we might examine our own hearts. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. See if there be any unclean thing in us and show it to us. Oh, Father, I pray again, if there's one here who's not a Christian, if there's one here who has, has rejected Christ up until this day, but this would be the moment where they lay down their guns and they surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Two weeks ago we looked at the first in this series of parables that our Lord spoke to this delegation of elders and chief priests and, and also we'll see here Pharisees, this delegation from the Sanhedrin who had approached Him 
had begun to interrupt him and his teaching and his preaching of the gospel in the temple. You'll remember they came to him at first and they questioned his authority. He immediately turned the conversation around, turned it back onto their heads. And now he has taken up the offensive. He's teaching them by way of parables and he's explaining the indictment and the sentence against these men and the nation of people that is following them. And he will also explain the eventual execution that will come from the hand of God upon them. They have rejected Christ's authority, Christ's word. Prior to that, they had rejected God's prophet, John the Baptist. We've seen that both of those rejections were in spite of the fact that they knew of the heavenly origin of both. They knew that John's ministry was a heavenly, God-sent ministry. They know at least that Jesus is a heaven-sent prophet. I believe they know that He is the Christ, the Messiah. Now perhaps you've noticed as we walk through these parables, just the first two of them, or, or the first one, now moving into the second one, that there's sort of a chronological sequence and some overlap in, in them as, as Christ teaches. And we might could summarize the, the lessons of each parable, beginning in verse 28 and going all the, all the way through chapter 22, verse 14, with this, the first parable he's saying, or he said in essence, you would not turn to God even after you saw the fruit produced by the ministry of John the Baptist. Therefore, the indictment against you is you are unbelieving. Then we come to the second parable today and we'll see the lesson is, is, is like this. The, the sentence comes out like this. Your unbelief and your rejection will lead ultimately to the confiscation of kingdom power, of kingdom ministry. And then we'll see in the next parable next week that he says, in effect, because of your unbelief, described in the first parable, and in light of the removal of your kingdom power and ministry, in the second parable, you will suffer everlasting punishment in hell. So there's sort of an, an order, a sequence, an overlap in these parables. We're, we're building a, a lesson that's leading to a point. And so in this second parable, verses 33 to 46, we see an illustration of the indictment that was, that's already been pronounced in verses 28 to 32. And in this parable, that indictment leads logically to the sentence that's about to come upon them. That's what we're going to see in this parable. Taking hold of the first parable and pointing to the third parable, we have this, this middle child, this parable of the, the wicked tenants. Now, by way of introduction, I also want you to, to hear from Isaiah. Because I think Isaiah gives us some clues as to, to what's happening in the day of Christ as he gives this parable and how we are to think about his words. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 5. This is verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it 
and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, can you, can you hear the resemblance in that? Can you see that they're, they're the same picture? Isaiah preached in his day, and our Lord is preaching in his day. One commentator calls this informal typology. In other words, the pictures are similar, almost parallel, but it's not as though it's just a type. It was true in Isaiah's day, of, Isaiah's, of the nation in Isaiah's day. It was, the condition was truly as the prophet saw it and the prophet described it. And the judgment that came upon them was their exile into Babylon. Their, their captivity. God removed their hedge. They were devoured by the nations. They were defeated. The point in Christ's parable here in Matthew 21 is that they're guilty of the same sins. They're hardly any different than the nation prior to the Babylonian captivity, which if you read the Old Testament, that, that is the, the, the bottom of the pit, we might say. The, the nation never was lower than when they were eventually hauled off into captivity. Even when they came back from captivity, they never quite recovered from that. That was the, the low spot of their history, and we're going to see the condition is the same. So as we read this parable, we're not only to see the state of the nation in Christ's own day, but we are also to see our Lord pointing to their long-term condition that has now risen to another boiling point. If you think of the, the sin of men prior to the flood, and you see that God destroyed everyone except for eight persons on the ark He saved, and then you look at our nation now and you wonder, well, it's the same. Why would God not do the same? Well, the Scripture is clear. He will do the same, not by flood, but by fire. The only thing that's, that's holding it off is His compassion towards His elect to bring in more of His people. Sort of the same picture here. In Babylon, or prior to their Babylonian captivity, they were wicked, they were evil, they were idolatrous, and so God said, enough. And then we look at them in our Lord's day and we wonder, well, they're the same. Why is God not just doing the same thing He did before? Well, He's about to, but He still has a plan to fulfill in the person and the work of Christ. So we, we're seeing their long-term condition 
It's risen to a boiling point, and our Lord is trying to explain that and describe that. So as we unpack this parable of indictment and sentence, notice first the indictment illustrated. The indictment illustrated. We read of the indictment in verses 28 to 32. Now we're going we're to see a picture that explains it. And here we'll just walk through the whole parable, verses 33 to 41. These folks have already been charged with a refusal to turn and believe, even though they saw the testimony of John. They're guilty of unbelief. And our Lord is going to demonstrate that the judgment looming over Israel is not simply an off-the-cuff reaction by a vindictive God to the recent disobedience of a few religious leaders. And many people seem to think that way. When they read the New Testament and the life of Christ, the bad guys are always just the Pharisees. And if you want to be charged with, with some type of legalism, you're a Pharisee. And we forget that this nation had been in this state for hundreds of years. And, and even one commentator already even, even said it's hard to really separate the religious leaders from the people. They were all one in their in their ministry and in their work and in their desires and their, their supposed worship. And we actually see that played out when the people themselves call for the crucifixion of our Lord. It's not just that the Pharisees were screaming by themselves while everyone else was trying to stop it. They all joined in together. So he uses this parable to describe the history of these people and their numerous opportunities to turn to God. Read with me verse 33. He says, hear another parable. He doesn't skip a beat from the last one. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So here we have the scene established. The, the picture is set up for us and we see, I, I hope you see, how nearly connected this parable is with the last parable. And even extending all the way back to the, the cursing of the fig tree and this idea of fruit production. It's all tied together. This master of a house has planted a vineyard. He's put a fence around it. He's dug a wine press in it. He built a tower. He leased it to tenants. We're seeing the idea of, of ownership. He owns the vineyard. It's his. We're looking for fruit and he has taken every possible precaution to ensure good fruit production. Or if we wanted to use that language that we read in Isaiah, Isaiah, what, what more could I do for my vineyard? I've done everything there is to do. That's what's happening. This householder, this master of a house, owns a vineyard. He's taken all of the precautions. Now we could ask, what is the vineyard? We can go ahead and start interpreting the parable. What is the vineyard? Well, again, I think right in line with Isaiah 5, the vineyard is the covenant people of God. It is, it is Israel externally. God has established His people. He's planted them. He's looking for fruit. And what is fruit? Again, I believe fruit is still practical piety. It is obedience to God from the heart. That's what He wants from His people. God desires Steadfast love, not just sacrifices. 
He desires that His people know Him truly, not just offer burnt offerings. It's the same as it was in the days of the prophets. Prior to this, He's established His people. He's looking for true, heartfelt worship and obedience from them. And we read verses 34 to 36. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the servants, or the tenants, took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now, here it's where we really begin to see, and especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we really begin to see the comparison with Israel of old and Israel in our Lord's day. We read that He sent servants to the tenants to get His fruit. Well, we know from just a, a cursory reading of the Old Testament, God had repeatedly sent His servants to His people. He sent His prophets to the kings. Samuel went to Saul to rebuke him for his sin. Nathan went to David to call him out, to point out his sin. The man of God went to Jeroboam to rebuke him for his idolatry when he established worship in Bethel and Dan rather than pointing people to worship in Jerusalem where God had chosen his, the place that God had chosen for His presence to dwell. Elijah rebuked wicked King Ahab for his Baal worship and his disobedience. The prophets were, were it seems, always in relation to a king, to, to tell the king to, to obey, to turn back to God. We also see God's servants being sent to the common people. In Isaiah 48 and verse 1, hear this. O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. Isaiah was preaching to the people. Jeremiah 2.2, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 4, And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Hosea 4.1 Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, Hosea 5.1. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land, Joel chapter 1 and verse 2. God had sent His prophets to His kings and to His people from the very beginning of time. He's never been without a witness on the earth. And especially after the formation of this commonwealth of Israel, God had never... Let a time go by when, when, there, when there was not a prophet, a servant, going to them from God, calling them to repentance, pointing them to the law, reminding them of the curses of, of, upon disobedience and the blessings upon obedience. He was always sending them prophets. Many we don't even know about. We know that there were just schools of the prophets. There were a lot more than we read about. He always sent His servants to His people. And then... The tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. He sent his other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. And also when you read through the, the scriptures, we know that God's people had repeatedly rejected his servants. We'll see in Matthew 23 and verse 37 where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. When Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7, in verse 52, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. In Romans 10, 21, Paul says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God had sent and sent and sent and spoken and spoken and spoken and they rejected the prophets. They killed the prophets. They persecuted the prophets. And so you see with these words, the Lord is describing the history of the nation. They had had this reputation for hundreds of years and this has not changed. It's not a new indictment. It's the same old indictment. It's a documented fact. They never received the Word of God as a whole. And so we read, Finally, that is ultimately as a final appeal. Here there's an, an allusion to the apex of the matter. God, God sent and sent and sent and sent. And finally, as almost like a, a last-ditch effort, He sent His Son, saying, They will respect My Son, verse 37. Now the Son was more than a servant. The Son was an heir to His Father's vineyard and His Father's estate. We sort of see an illustration of this in, in Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 spiritually when Paul says you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God. We see that this idea of heirship. The son was the heir of the father's labors, the father's vineyard, the father's estate. And so when the son came he didn't merely come to convey the father's message like the servants would have. He came as the Father's substitute. He came in the place of the Father. And so the assumption by the master of the house is, well, if they respect me, the master of the house, well, they should give the same respect to my son. They should give the same honor to my son. Verse 38, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Again, the heir, the one to whom all of this will belong someday. And in this statement, we see the, the motivation of these wicked tenants. It was greed and covetousness. They wanted for themselves what rightly belonged to the son of the master. They wanted it. And so verse 39 they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They ejected him from his own possession. They've taken his life as a means to collecting for themselves what rightly belonged to him. Now that's the end of the parable. In verse 40, Jesus gives these men the opportunity to to render their own verdict. He allows them another opportunity for self-condemnation when he asks, When therefore the, owners, or the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
And they said to him, here those same men that he's addressing, from verse 23, chief priests and elders. We also know that there were scribes among them. There were also Pharisees among them, verse 45. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now, think about how they've just responded. They do not say, well, it seems to us that he should, so on and so forth. There's a certainty in their words. He will do this. This is the obvious, obvious justice in this situation is this. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. It's actually the same, two, two different forms of the same word there. A wretch would be a morally reprehensible person. And then the miserable death is literally a morally reprehensible death. He will put those morally reprehensible people to a morally reprehensible death. And so you see, not only are they entrapping themselves, but how violent and vindictive their language is when it comes to justice. They're bloodthirsty men. Hypocrites of the highest order, acting as though they care about this injustice done to the Son in this made-up parable while they themselves are plotting to do the very same thing. Just like th this was Nathan's approach with David. He gives the parable about the, the little ewe lamb and David says, bring him here, I'll kill him now. And he says, you're the man. You deserve what you wanted to execute on another. I was reminded as I thought of this about the comments that you read and hear whenever there's a news story posted about a, a child molester or someone who is through, through their negligence killed a, a child or uh, someone who uh, rapes a woman and the news is plastered on Facebook and you read the comments. Just read the comments. Let them rot in jail. Let them burn in hell. They should, they should get the same thing. Wait till they get to prison. That same thing will happen to them. It's, a, it's a, an immediate, unmitigated, bloodthirsty mob. If they had their way, they would have pitchforks and torches, and they would kill that person on the spot. And yet they themselves do not realize they're guilty of the same sins. Maybe not outwardly and physical, but even in their, their minds and in their hearts, they're just as deserving of justice as that person that they're, they're reading about. These men prove by their innate desire for justice that they're worthy of the exact same severe punishment. They are morally reprehensible, worthy of a morally reprehensible death, we as sinners are morally reprehensible, worthy of a morally reprehensible death. And so they say he'll let out this vineyard to other tenants. He'll, he'll replace the tenants who were there with those who will render to him what he deserves, who will give him the fruits in their season. They know the master deserves his fruit. It's his vineyard. So this was their verdict in the situation. And so through this parable and, and, and allowing these men to speak for themselves and use their own words, 
Our Lord is showing us just how vile these men are. And he's, he's actually showing them as well how vile they are. Their own consciences, their own standard of judgment condemns them. Again, just like we see in our day. Our own standard of judgment condemns us and let us not ever be fooled into thinking that our standard of judgment is anywhere near the perfect standard of God's judgment. Nowhere close. You can type a thousand, you know, rot in hells on Facebook. Nowhere near the judgment and the righteousness and the standard of God who will put sinners into an eternity of hell. We don't understand it. But even, even our own pitiful standards of justice condemn us. And it's the same with them. They're condemned by their own consciences. The second thing that I want us to see in this account in verses 42 through 44 now is the sentence vindicated. They've been allowed to announce their own sentence. The vineyard must be taken away. They should be killed. And so now we're going to see that, that actually vindicated in our Lord's words. In His infinite wisdom... He's allowed these men to pronounce their own verdict. But just in case it's not clear, He's going to now take them to their own scriptures to substantiate that they are guilty and deserving of death. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, not skipping a beat, Have you never read the scriptures or read in the scriptures? He takes them to the text. And here He does begin to mix metaphors, which is wise, I believe. Remember in the parable, he's just described tenants who had rejected and killed every servant sent by their master, including his own son. The murder of that son was the final straw in their, straw in their rebellion. It was the apex of their rebellion. And so notice how our Lord ties this in to himself. Here he quotes from Psalm 118, with a reference also to Isaiah chapter 28. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. There, almost an exact quotation of Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. But again, there's also an allusion to Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now when we put these texts together to which he's referencing, we can make several observations about this cornerstone. We see that it is a God-laid stone. It is a precious stone. It is a tested stone. Belief is required in light of this stone. This stone has been rejected by the builders, but in spite of this rejection, God has established it as the cornerstone. Now we should rightly ask, what is the stone? Who are the builders? What's being built? And these questions 
we need to answer them if we're to understand what Christ is saying by using this text here. Now, the apostles later on in the New Testament will help us understand what's happening in this reference. Listen to Peter as he preaches in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter here is preaching to the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the family of Annas, the high priest. And what does he say? Jesus is the rejected cornerstone. And notice how Peter ties this intrinsically to the exclusivity of Christ in salvation. In a building project, there's only one cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. Therefore, there's salvation in no one else. And now listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Again, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter again, he preached at Pentecost and then he's going to write it again later in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. And this is, is probably the most, the most information we get from the apostle. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And then he quotes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Again, same, same information. Christ is the cornerstone in whom we must believe. Unbelievers are those who reject Christ. To unbelievers, He is now a stone of stumbling because they do not believe the Word of God and so therefore they trip over Him. Also notice in that reference that believers are being built into a spiritual house. A cornerstone is a, a piece of construction material. When you reference a cornerstone, you're talking about a construction site, a job, a project that someone's working on. 
Well, the house of God, that reference, the house of God from ancient times, has been a reference to the location of God's special dealings with His covenant people. Remember Jacob, when he had that experience with God, he, he anointed the stone and he called this place Bethel, the house of God. Throughout the Scriptures, Israel and Judah and the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem are all designated at some point or other as the house of God or a house. And then we come to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, which reads, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Also, 1 Timothy 3.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we see God's always been at work building this spiritual house. And that spiritual house is often typified by and mixed with an external physical house or a physical people. And so we come back to Matthew chapter 21. Let's put all of this together into this reference that Jesus has used. The builders are the nation led by their elders and their chief priests and their scribes. The stone rejected by them is Jesus Christ. The true house is the church of God. Throughout the history of Israel, men have attempted to take up the duty of building the house for themselves, by themselves. That's what's happening in Jesus' day. They're, they want to work for themselves. And so by using this reference, Christ is showing your punishment is just because in building for yourself, by you, yourself, you have no need for the most precious and significant item on the materials list, which is the cornerstone. You've rejected the most important thing. Verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. God had for centuries entrusted this nation with the mediation of His rule on the earth. They have failed to do their job. They have rejected God's Word. They have rejected God's Son. And now they must be punished. And their punishment is not unlike the, the punishment threatened in Revelation 2 and 3. Your punishment is, I will come and I will remove the special blessing of my presence and my work through you and I will render you fruitless. He will find another people, namely the redeemed nations through whom He will now work. It will no longer be the nation, but it will be the nations, all of the peoples. And then in verse 44, He returns to the the stone metaphor. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Remember, those who stumble over the stone are unbelievers because they do not believe the Word of God. 
they will trip, they will stumble over the person and the work of Christ. And ultimately, <clears throat> ultimately He will come in judgment upon them and it will be a just condemnation. They've rejected the most important thing. They've rejected the Son. Thirdly, in verses 45 to 46, we see their guilt demonstrated. Their crime, the rejection of Christ for the sake of their own glory. Their sentence, they will be rejected and God will do His work through another people. Notice what it says following this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They were a bright bunch. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So here's their response to all of this. They understand he's talking about them to them, and they won't do anything about it. Now, why will they not do anything about it? Because they fear the crowds. The, the, they're, they're right there. They're right at the place to do the very thing they came to do, and yet they won't because they're afraid of losing their power over the people. Now, what does that tell us about these men? It tells us they're still guilty. They're still in their sins. They've, re they've chosen to continue rejecting God's Word for the sake of their own selfish agenda. They refuse to let go of their own glory and glory in God's Messiah. They won't let go. In other words, they want the inheritance that belongs to the Son to belong to them. The glory they should be giving to Him, they want for themselves. And that requires them to maintain their authority over the people. What's written in John's Gospel is pertinent here. John 5, 44 Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John 12, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. That was their sin. We want the glory, we want the power, we want the authority. Therefore, we must reject anyone who comes in the way of our having the authority, our having the glory, and our having the power. Because they sought to build for themselves, by themselves, a name and a glory, they have rejected the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Now it's in verse... 42, we'll sort of backtrack a tad. Our Lord quoting from Psalm 118 with reference to Isaiah 28. He chronicles there the fundamental sin of this apostate nation. It was not that they were just hung up on their ceremonies and their traditions. It was not that they were just twisting the Scriptures. It was not that they just rejected John the Baptist. They have rejected Christ. That's their sin. They've rejected Christ. And this has been 
the fundamental sin of mankind and is still the fundamental sin of mankind. Friend, if you find yourself in everlasting torment, it will be because you rejected Christ the Lord. You have rejected Jesus Christ. Or to use the language here, the stone the builders rejected, you have rejected. Again, on that day, on Judgment Day, if you remain in your sin, you might be found a builder of a great and mighty empire, your own kingdom. And it might be quite a kingdom compared to the other kingdoms of men. And you may have many followers and many servants. And in that building you may have gained the smiles of men, the adoration of your children, or the applause of your spouse. But in the end, all of that will be nothing more than wood and hay and stubble to be consumed in the flames of Christ's glory. Because you'll be found guilty of having rejected the cornerstone, the most important piece of material. The word rejected here means to repudiate, to disallow, to consider as worthless, or to disapprove. This is what you have done with God's Son. We read in John 3 and verse 20, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And John also tells us that Jesus Christ is the light, the true light coming into the world. It's not that you've simply failed to leave room for Christ in your wickedness. It's that in your wickedness, you have purposefully chosen to spurn Christ. You have rejected Him. You have repudiated Him. You refuse to be associated with Him. You've disallowed Him. You refuse to look at Him and behold Him as a valid and credible Savior. You look upon Him with scorn and you consider that to you He's worthless. Now you might think that sounds like strong language, that that's a little harsh. You might say, well, I haven't refused to be associated with Him. I mean, I go to church, I'm associated with His people. That, that outward association means nothing. God will be the judge. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral ground. It's not harsh language to say, you've rejected Him. It's not, or it will not be on Judgment Day that you just didn't jive with the church scene. Or that you never really felt included with those folks. Or that it, you just couldn't learn the lingo and so you didn't feel like you fed in, fit, fit in or you never had the opportunity to come to Christ or that there was a bad personal experience with a church or a group of people that just sort of burned you and turned you off and so therefore you're justified in your unbelief. 
If you find yourself in the torments of hell, it will be because just like these men, you looked long enough at Christ to then turn and say, He's undesirable to me. I don't need Him. I reject Him. And men love to make all of these excuses as to why they would not become a Christian. But the ultimate reason is they just reject Christ. That's the, that comes down to a rejection of Jesus Christ. You want to be Lord, but Christ is Lord. You can't have that spot. You want to earn your own salvation through your own good deeds and your works. Christ's works leave no room for yours. And so you reject Him. You want glory for yourself. But His glory He will not give to another. You want to increase in fame and popularity. He must increase and you must decrease. And so you reject Him. You might want to be looked upon by the world as one with, with great wisdom. But Paul says you need to become a fool in the eyes of the world. You might want to establish your own identity in the world. But Christ is our sanctification. It is, it is through Christ that we are set apart from the world. It's not my own individuality or my personality or my way of being. All of that must be cast aside. And so you reject Christ. Or perhaps you want immediate pleasure. But Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And so you reject Him. Or you want to pursue your dreams and your aspirations. But Christ says... You need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And so you reject Him. You see, this is the stumbling stone for the believer. He is the stumbling stone for the unbeliever, rather. Just as Christ is everything in His person and in His work, He's all of our salvation for the unbeliever. He is all of their rejection. Every bit of it is just a refusal to come to Him as Savior, to, to, to come to Him and receive Him and all that He is. It's not that people stumble over a philosophy or a way of thinking. They just can't wrap their minds around Creation out of nothing, a, a, a worldwide flood, a virgin birth, uh, being raised from the dead. None of that is why people will not come to Christ. It's not just that they have rejected a way of life. They say, well, you, well, you act this way and you listen to this and you don't watch this and you, you dress like that and you go there with those people and, and I just don't want all of that. That's not why people will not become Christians. It's not because of this a repulsive list of rules. They perceive Christianity to be just a list of do's and don'ts, and they say, well, I don't need that. I don't want Christianity. It's not that people are repulsed by this ancient form of worship where we gather and we sing songs to a God and we, we glory in blood atonement and blood appeasement. That's not why people will not come to Christ. It's because of Him. It's just His person. The Lord demands that we set aside all forms of self-pleasure, all self-righteousness, all worldly man-invented wisdom, repudiate all of that and follow the God-man who died and then came back from the dead and flew into heaven on a cloud and will fly back again on a cloud. You have to lay down your hammer, unbuckle your tool belt, walk off the job site of your kingdom and say, I will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. 
for he has become the cornerstone by the doing of the Lord. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. God has made him the cornerstone. The most important rock in ancient architecture was the cornerstone. A cornerstone must have been hewn from the right quarry, made of the right material, because it had to be strong enough to uphold the weight of the, of the building. A cornerstone would have had to have been rightly shaped if it would be a right guidestone for the walls that would come out from it and up from it. A cornerstone would have to be rightly set and established to provide stability for the building so that it would be immovable and firm. And God has laid in Zion a precious cornerstone who is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're tempted to reject Him again, think about this. Consider that He, Christ, has been hewn from the right quarry. For He is both God and man. He is of the right material. If we could use that language to speak of God. He is God so that He may deal with God on your behalf. And He's man so that He may deal with you on behalf of God. He is God so that He might bear the weight of everlasting torment. And He's man so that He might carry the weight of sin in the flesh. He's man so that He might die a sinner's death. But He's God so that He might live forever. He's hewn from the right quarry. You consider that Christ is rightly shaped. He's holy and blameless and undefiled. He is of the perfect angle and pitch to suit God's perfect standards. He is the rock untouched by human maladies. He is the altar untainted by human invention. He is acquainted with your infirmities and yet He is unscathed by your sinful flesh. Because of His virgin birth, He is without the tinge of Adam's fall. Because He's sinless, He has no need to atone for His own sins. Because He is holy, He can approach God in our stead. Because He is blameless, there is none to condemn those who are His. Because He's undefiled, there's no need for Him to offer repeated sacrifices for sins. His work is done. He's taken His seat. He's rightly shaped and perfect. Consider that Christ has been rightly established and set forth by God as crucified in the stead of sinners. He's been raised from the dead by His Father who is well pleased with His work. He reigns from on high with power and might over His everlasting kingdom. He will come again to judge the living and the dead and to gather His people. Christ Jesus has been quarried and cut and set in all of His perfections, able to uphold the universe and all of the history of redemption. Lost and dying sinner, if this Christ, who God Himself 
has made the cornerstone of his house, is accepted by God, is chosen and precious, why would you not run to him? Why would you reject him who God has established? God has accepted him. God is pleased with him. The Father has said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And so he will accept you in Christ. He will be pleased with you in Christ. So I'll say again, if you feel that you must go to hell, know now and for all of eternity that it will be because you have chosen today to reject a perfect Savior and the salvation offered in His name. That will be the only reason. It will not be because, you know, I stuttered or I looked funny or whatever it might be. The temperature was too hot. The temperature was too cold. I didn't get much sleep last night. It will be none of that. In hell, it will be none of that. It will purely be, it will be only because you have rejected the stone that God has established as the cornerstone. Now for you who do believe, as Peter says, the honor is yours. You will not be put to shame. You spurn the wisdom of the world. Everything that the world calls wise, you call folly. And everything you call wisdom, they call folly. You won't be put to shame for that. You will not be put to shame for repudiating the smiles of men. You will not be put to shame for denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ. You will not be put to shame for throwing yourself upon the rock of ages who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter assures us the honor is ours. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, Peter says. And the Lord's table is a great reminder of that mercy. As we commune with Christ at His supper over the elements of bread and wine, we are comforted by that truth. We can drink and eat and think and be reminded, I've received mercy. I will not be put to shame. No matter what the world says, I will not be put to shame in the end. I will be honored in the end. Because Jesus Christ the God-laid, God-approved cornerstone has died. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. In the Lord's Supper, we remember that. He was put to death in the flesh. And so as the elements are passed, take a minute and consider Christ the cornerstone. And then we'll come and we will... Eat with him.